You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, we are in Hosea. Take a break next week to celebrate Resurrection Day, and then we'll jump back in for the next two weeks, and we'll close out the book of Hosea. And so Hosea chapter 11 today. And so over the course of our reading through the book of Hosea, uh, we've, we've dealt with a great deal of imagery to describe God's unfaithful people uh, and even to describe God himself. Hosea describes the people of that time who... Have, as we have learned, are not, who are not dissimilar to us. He describes them as stubborn heifers. He, he says that their love is like a morning cloud. He, he, he refers to them as a, a pancake where one side is burnt and the other side is raw. He says that they're a dove that is easily distracted, a, a faulty bow that aims at its target and always misses. He says that they're a useless vessel that nobody wants. Even a wild donkey, a wild donkey that stubbornly leaves the pack to pursue other lovers. And then Hosea describes God in in some very interesting terms. He describes God as a moth or rot in that he slowly decays all of our earthly pursuits that are in vain. He calls him a lion, and he'll call him again a lion today. He describes him as rain, that his blessings fall indiscriminately and consistently on the earth, that he's a healer and he also is a farmer. And then of God's relationship with mankind, uh, Hosea reveals to us through his own life and then through his words, the imagery of marriage, that God is the husband and we are his bride. It's a covenant between two unequally yoked entities a relationship that seemingly always is one-sided, that is mostly bad more than it is good. And we've seen over and over and over and over in Hosea, maybe to the point that you're sick of it, that the deficiencies in our marriage is not God. They're not caused by him. Uh, They're caused by us. And he continually pursues and woos us and showers us with his love And we read earlier in Hosea that God conveys this truth by commanding the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute and remain faithful to her even though she will prove continually to be unfaithful to him. This demonstrates God's faithful love to us. And so Hosea has painted this broad picture of our marriage and of God's faithfulness. And today we will use additional brushes to paint what that marriage looks like. And in this chapter particularly, we're going to look at the beginnings of this relationship when the marriage was new. And we'll see a a picture of heartbreak. We'll see true love. And we'll see the highest form of faithfulness. So let us pray and we will enter the word today. Lord, we are grateful to be here. Sometimes we take this for granted. And I, I think of 
our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and in the rest of Europe who, who are corporately to praise and worship you and to hear your word. And Lord, we're grateful for that word, that you have given us a gift of your word that we can read and know who you are and that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes those words come to life. And so, Lord, we pray through your power and your conviction that you will illuminate this word, that you would bring us gladness and delight, that you would bring conviction in our hearts where we fall short. We are thankful for this, Lord. We love you and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea the prophet is speaking. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so here in the beginning of, of this chapter, we see God reminiscing on this marriage. He calls Israel his child. He's remembering the early days of that relationship. And so not only do we see God as a, as a husband, but we revere him here as the father of the nation. He remembers Abraham and he remembers Isaac and Jacob. He remembers days long before the Israelites exploded and multiplied across the region. And in these words, we know that God's not referring to them as children in age, but children in maturity. That long before the nation of Israel was ever really able to comprehend the depths of God's faithfulness to them, what he would do for them, and what he would promise for them, God said these words. He said, I loved you. I loved you. And I think that there is great gravity in that statement, a great treasure in that statement, because I have children. And, and my son, Asa, is one. And, and in his whole day, as you know, as a, as a baby is filled with eating and sleeping and filling his diaper. And in the midst of all of those grand activities, right, he uh, peruses the house, searching for undiscovered treasure to put in his mouth. It's as if he's the offspring of Blackbeard the Pirate in The Cookie Monster, right? Always searching for bounty. Now, what could my son give to me that would ever prove him to be worthy of my love? Or what could he ever give to me in our relationship at his age that would provide anything of substance? And the answer is, is of course, gloriously, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so this is a wonderful truth for us here in verse 1 that tells us that God's love isn't predicated on our worthiness it's not predicated on our effort or our goodness. That God's love isn't conditional, but it's covenantial. That God loves his children, and he has revealed himself to them, and he has obligated himself to them in fidelity. And he holds them securely in his hand by his strength and through his love. God loves his children for nothing more than the mere fact that they are his and nothing else. God remembers them in their time of Egypt. He rescues them, as we remember, from the hand of Pharaoh. He remembers the plagues. He remembers the locusts. He remembers the bloody river, the frogs, the hail, and the Passover. He remembers parting the Red Sea and leading them in the wilderness. And surely there were difficulties in that day, but there were great triumphs even amidst their grumbling and their periodic unfaithfulness. God continues to lead them by cloud and by fire. He continues to provide food and water and shelters. And it is as if God is saying in this passage that these, those were the glory days. 
Those were the glory days. Back when you trusted and rested in me with all of your life. And then in verse 2, he says that the more they called, the more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now, now note, he says that the more they called them, the more that they seem to go away. What is happening? This is, this is the imagery that, that Hosea is painting for us here in chapter 11 of God's beloved bride becoming a perpetual teenager. Now, I'm going to talk about teenagers. I was a teenager, so as if you're a teenager in here, I'm not being derogatory. I'm just being truthful, okay? So just know that. As a teenager, I'll talk about myself. I was foolish, selfish, and I was the smartest person in the room, and that wasn't true. He said, I called them out of Egypt. God is referring to the Exodus. God delivers them from slavery. Moses rescues by God's command his people. He calls out his son. He delivers them. He saves them. And he says, but the more that I called them, the more they seemed to move away from me. Now, if you have ever been a teenager, which is all of us, or if you are currently a parent of a teenager, you might relate to this. You know that sometimes in your best attempts at engaging with or displaying your love and tenderness that those best efforts are often met with resistance and even annoyance. Mom, stop it. Stop embarrassing me. Or you'll hear, you don't understand me. I'm going to my room, and you'll look at your spouse, and you'll say, what did I say? What did you say? What did you do? And you'll say, I just, all I said, I asked him about his day. That's all I did. I asked him about his day. There is so much self-deception self-delusion in us when we are teenagers. We are developing awkwardly into adults. We are or we were or we soon will be, as teenagers, more into ourselves than anything else, more in our head than anywhere else, that even the good and right and noble things our parents try to do are rejected and dismissed. And this is what God has done. He has continually called his people upwards to himself, away from their past lives, away from their past desires, but they have rejected him at almost every turn. They have rejected his counsel. They've rejected his law. They've rejected his prophet. All of his efforts seem to be in vain. They've actually even gone to worship other gods and pursue after worldly pleasures despite having the one true God of the universe in their midst. And in verse 3, Hosea says, yet. And I love this word yet in scripture because it implies very deep meanings. Yet meaning that even though you acted this way or yet despite yourself, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I taught them by their arms. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Yet God says, I taught you how to walk. And it is if I taught you how to walk so that you could just walk away from me. It might similarly say something like this. I gave you that mouth. And now you use your mouth and your words to speak curses to me. Or I gave you that body. And now you do things with your body that disgust me. Or I gave you that mind. And now you use your mind to create things that break my heart. What God is saying here is even deeper 
than that. Because he literally taught them how to walk. God appeared to the nation through a cloud by day and fire by night to guide them into the promised land. He taught them his way, their way, through his commandments and his laws to guide them, to tell them how to walk virtuously, righteously, nobly. And then the New Testament paints these laws as what was the guide until Christ came. He took them up by their arms so that they wouldn't stray. He held them up that they may not stumble. He guided them through people like Moses and Joseph and Joshua and David. And all they did in return was to celebrate these men and forget their God. They would make sacrifices to golden calves and bales, and they did not know that it was the Lord who healed and guided them. And he continues in verse 4. He said, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I think it's worth noting here the way that God draws and leads his people. It's not with force, it's not with anger through striking fear, but it is with kindness. And this term kindness is the Hebrew word Adam, which signifies humanness. And so what Hosea is saying is God has revealed himself to his people in ways that they could understand and know and sense and feel his kindness with bands of love. He, he, his way has always been loving and endearing and sweet and gentle that he might overcome them with kindness. And we see this clearly displayed in our Savior, in Jesus, who says, if you know me, then you know the Father. We see Jesus weeping with Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother. We see Jesus healing a man blind from birth with his rough hands gently. We see Jesus responding to a woman who grabbed his cloak in fear and trembling, and he turns and he says to her, daughter. We see Jesus healing a leper and then touching him in a way that had never been done in years. God woos his people. And we remember the scripture that says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that turns us towards him. And he still woos us today. He still displays his kindness today. And so God lifts his nation out of bondage, out of slavery. He removes what is called a heavy yoke. We remember the yoke is something that goes on the back of an animal for them to do work. He removes this heavy yoke of slavery and this forceful bit in their mouth that directs their every path, and he rescues them. And in Jesus' words, we're reminded of this. He says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is kindness. And the scripture then compels a God who swoops down, draws near, and supplies their every need. That he would pick up their cup and their food, and he would bring it to their mouth. This is a God of grace and mercy. Sweet faithfulness from the Lord. 
And then we see verses five and six connect back to verse two and the judgment pronounced in the previous chapters that we've read about. And almost in a sense, he's transitioning out of his reminiscing here into the present day reality. And in verse five, he says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. And it is here that we see the tough love of our God. We come face to face with a God who willingly lets us go through trials and difficult times to bring us back into himself. God is saying here that I'm not gonna return you to Egypt. You're not gonna go back into slavery. You're not gonna go back into bondage, but the Assyrians are gonna conquer you. And that may, that may be worse. You know, actually what is quite fascinating to me, uh, I love history, is that you can actually find uh, the writing from the king of Assyria in this time, written in stone on a wall uh, in, next to his royal palace that is in, today it's in modern day, northern Iraq. And, and that inscription says this. It says, in my first year of reign, the people of Samaria, and Samaria is a part of the nation of Israel, to the number of 27,290, I carried away. 50 chariots from my royal equipment I selected. The city I rebuilt, I made it greater than it was before. People of the lands I had conquered settled therein. My official tartan I placed over them as governors. And so this happened. And it was terrible. The sword raged their city and it consumed the bars of their gates and devoured them because of their own counsel. They had trusted in themselves over and over again. They did not listen to God, his counsel, his prophet, his law. They did not heed his kindness. There was a false belief in that day that if one didn't take religion too seriously, then you would find freedom. And I think it's interesting because that is certainly not unlike our current world. Yet the truth is, is this. So if we don't submit ourselves to the rule of Jesus... And we remember that Jesus describes himself plainly as this, I'm gentle and lowly, that his, bird, his, his yoke is light and his burden is easy, or vice versa. If we don't submit ourselves to the rule of Christ, we will submit ourselves to something else. And if we submit ourselves to something else, our sin will rule over us. And we will know anxiety and addiction, a constant need for approval, success. We will work. We will find sexual sin, the need for sports to be our idol. And things that are benign will wreak havoc and destroy our marriages, harm our children, and ruin our lives. Hosea continues in verse 7. He says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. You know, this passage reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah, who in chapter two, in verse two says this, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert to a land not sown. God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, I remember how devoted you were to me. I remember being, uh, you being uh, faithful and loving to me. You follow me. You enjoyed our marriage. 
And I think this is great because we see that God's not some machine that sits in the heavenly realms that judges our sin and gives us commands. Like he remembers the amazing love relationship he had with his people. He remembers with joy and heartwarming moments, the heartwarming moments it gave to him. But at this point, Israel had walked away from him for years. And in that same book in Jeremiah, in verse five, it says, what fault did you find your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? God is saying, what fault did you find in me? He would say, what did I do? Like, what did I do? I I taught you. I helped you walk. I saved you from slavery, from countless enemies. What did I do that caused you to walk away from me? Doesn't this sound like the lament of our hearts sometimes? That we were once so connected to God. And the moment that something better came along. And the moment that we found success, the moment that we found something else that made us happy, we ran away. Something else allured us, enticed us, memorized us, and we went after it, and we left God standing there saying, what did I, what did I do? They are bent on turning away from him, which means they can't help it. They're so deceived by their sin. And though they would call out the most high God, God says, I won't lift them up. Time and time again, they had done this, called out to God in times of desperation, Yahweh, Jehovah God, help us, save us. But in their hearts, there was no true turning. There was no true repentance. How many of us live that way? How many of us would rather keep God at an arm's distance and only call out to him when we need him. This is not how the Holy One of Israel is to be treated. And he responds that he shall not raise them up. This is not how he should be And he uses the third person. He says he, implying that who they are actually calling out cannot possibly be him, because he is not a God to be called upon in times of need. And so Israel continues in their waywardness, right? They continue falling into temptation. But as what is really breaking God's heart is not that they're choosing sin. Is that in choosing sin, they're choosing their sin over him. At any time we face temptation in our life, any time we walk willingly into sin, we too choose sin over him. And, and so how does God respond to his bride in their unfaithfulness. What is going on in his heart? We know that God is holy and just. We know that he's merciful and kind and loving, but yet we assume that God is a God that is in judgment of us, that he's indignant of us, he hates us, he's condemning us. He has displeasure and disappointment in us and wants to separate from us. But it's just the opposite. Because in verse eight, listen to our Lord through Hosea. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How, how can I hand you over to Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were both cities that were destroyed in the same time that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And God says, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? You're my child. I've taught you to walk. I've seen you grow up. I, I love you. And he knows that they deserve it. But out of his passionate love for them, he is heart 
wrenched at the thought of giving it. And in eight, he continues, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and I am not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. God says that his heart recoils. And in the Hebrew language, that word is haphak. And it's used to indicate a turning over or an overthrowing, that God's heart is literally turning from burning anger towards compassion because God is faithful to his covenant, because God is faithful to his people. And he has a long-suffering ability to deal with us in ways that we cannot comprehend, in ways that we're not worthy of. And his compassion grows here, warm and tender towards those who are cold and rigid of him. How amazing is the love of our Father. I, I will not execute my burning anger against you. Why? He said these gloriously true words. I'm God, and I'm not a man. He implies that he's faithful. He's not like man. We would have given up in this situation. If somebody was adulterous, time and time again, abusive, loveless towards us, we would have walked away. God does not walk away. He stays committed. But he says an interesting phrase here. He says that I will not again destroy Ephraim. But won't the same cycle ensue again? Won't the, the nation, as they have done, move from faithless, faithfulness to unfaithfulness like they have done so many times in their history? And the answer is yes, because the human heart is what? It's wicked and deceitful and desperately sick is what the scripture tells us. Of course they're going to rebel, but he's not going to destroy them again. Why? Because he'll destroy somebody else. He will destroy his son by giving him up to be brutally slaughtered and take the wrath that the nation of Israel so deserves. He will bring his son to become like a lamb. God is not like a man because we would never do that. And his wrath isn't filled with passion and revenge as if we would picture it in our minds. It's not full of rage as we would display it, that our God's wrath is perfectly controlled. There's not an ounce of vindictiveness in it, nor is there an ounce of enabling in it. God is right and true and just in everything he does. And it flows out of God's love for justice his love for creation, and his love for his holiness. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Hosea chapter 3, uh, verse 1. We recall the story of Hosea, uh, and, and, he, and in this passage it says, uh, God saying to Hosea, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, Hosea, go find her. Love this woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous. And in other words, what God is saying is, hey, Hosea, go show your love to this unfaithful woman who in this very moment is being adulterous and unfaithful to you. Go find her. And then he says in the next scripture, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. In these verses, God prophetically speaks of his love for his children. Go find her again. Like, can you imagine how heart-wrenching that would have been for Hosea to go look for his wife 
who was a prostitute and then went back into prostitution by her own choice, rejects him. Where would he have had to go to look for her? What streets would he have had to walk on? What people would he have had to talk to? What things would he have had to endure to buy her back? And in verse 2, it says, so I bought her. In chapter 3, I bought her with 15 shekels of silver. But she was his wife. She was already his. I mean, what was that scene like? Gomer strapped, chained to some auction block, naked, being sold to the highest bidder. And Hosea had to walk up and say and look at the wife of his own, his own wife, the mother of his children. He had to look at the man in charge and say, that's my wife. And he pays a sum of money to buy back what is already his. Friends, the scripture says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Mankind is the unique possession of our creator God. He formed us, he made us, he designed us, he knows us. But 2,000 years ago, he paid a dear price. He paid for what he already possessed. He sent his son to spend his blood to purchase back what he already owned. Hosea and Gomer are a picture of the gospel. He already knew her. It's a picture of salvation completed in spite of her sin, in spite of her doings, in spite of her rebellion. And friends, if you haven't realized it yet, our Hosea has come. Our salvation has come. And he found you and he found me. And he had to walk in despicable places. And he had to communicate and live with broken, sinful humanity who gifted him a wonderful gift in murdering him. And just as Hosea searched for his wife, Jesus has come searching for salvation for his bride. And when he found us, we weren't neat and put together. We were in chains, and we were naked, and we were sinful. Yet our heart, God's heart, recoiled in him. It turned in him. And he said, how much? And the law demanded the death of his son. For then and only then could humanity escape the wrath of God that was rightfully on their heads. And our scripture says that for the joy before Christ, he endured the cross. Yet we know that even after Jesus is killed, the Israelites turn away from him. They killed him, right? But the promises of God remain true. The promise of God remains true. He will win his people, Israel, back just as he is winning us back and has bought us back. And there are many verses that that prophetically speak to Israel rejoining in salvation, Romans 11 chiefly among those. But here in Hosea 11, verse 10, Hosea says this, He shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now, many commentators believe, as I do, that these verses are in reference to Jesus' return and reign. 
that they shall go after the Lord, but he will roar like a lion. When Christ came to save humanity, he came as a humble, meek lamb led to be slaughtered. But not so when he returns. He will return like a lion. And he will stomp his majestic foot on the Mount of Olives, and he will roar in the sure majesty of his power. Will make sinful men tremble. And for those who trust in his name and his love and rest in his person, we will bow and weep at the sight of our Savior. Yet others will be bowing because their kneecaps will be shattered by the power of that war. And all the combined armies of the world stand not an ounce of chance of coming against our Lord. An ant would have a better chance of stopping a boulder coming down a hill. And when he roars, his children will come from the west, trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, to see their great and good king and savior for the first time face to face. And I don't know to what measure, but God prophesies that Israel will be a part of the children coming to him, a part of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so friends, today we just remind ourselves of this. That God is not like us, friends. He is not like us, and his love is better than ours that his faithfulness is greater than ours, that his justice is more just than ours, that his kindness leads us to repentance, that his wrath isn't vindictive or enabling, and that he was willing to pay a price that we were not willing to. And in him is all that we long and hope for. And like the Israelites, we learn that God hasn't called us to earn his love because we never could. It is the joy of God's people simply to rest in who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. And so today we get to celebrate and come together in joy as we hear about through baptism of one who's made a decision to show publicly the rest that they have found in Christ. Jacob Landis is here today. He's been a part of our church family for a very long time. And he's going to join us on stage with his family and one of his coaches to make a profession of faith in Christ through baptism. And we're going to celebrate the fact that God is still working today and that his peace is still being found today. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Brent Kunkel. Uh, for five of the past six years, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, Jacob's football coach at, at Bluffton High School. And uh, I think I've been in high school for six years. We had some of those school years thrown out. And just as, as crazy as it is to see the physical transformation that Jacob has gone through from a you know, chubby little shy seventh grader to... <laughs> Uh, to the man that he is now, right, is, is insane. But um, the, the spiritual transformation that he's gone through obviously is way more important. Uh, and, and Jacob, this year today is, is greater than anything you did on any Friday night or anything like that that I've seen you do. So um, this is one of those moments as a coach where it's like, man, it, it's, it's great. So I want to thank you for um, you to be a part of your day. But um, to speak on Jacob's character, uh, we have a, a saying in our program, we use the acronym FAMILY, 
You know, we talk about family a lot, but to forget about me, I love you. We want to we put guys in position uh, to, to be of service. And it's one thing, you know, when your coach tells you, hey, we're going to do this thing. But it's another thing when it's internal and it's organic. And uh, Jacob is that kid who is always looking to serve. He's always trying to make other people better. Uh, he was the spiritual leader of our football team this past season. Um, and it's, like I said, it's just an amazing thing to see the internal, you know, come up. Um, and, and like Jacob, like I said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. Your parents are beautiful people as well. And just to, to be here on this day and to see you make this commitment is amazing. So. Uh, Jacob, it's been a pleasure to walk alongside you the last few years and uh, watch you grow as a leader and, and watch you grow in your love of Jesus. And so because of your testimony and because of your faith in Jesus, we will baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Join me in praying over Jacob as he um, steps out in faith here. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, these moments. Um, they're, they're a confirmation of a work that you're already doing in his life. And so, Lord, I pray that Jacob's whole life would, would be a fuller understanding of who you are. That, Lord, that there wouldn't be a single day of his life that he wouldn't lean and trust in, in your name and your power and your grace that, Lord, you would make him as a mighty fortress for your name, that your love would be glorified in the world through his joy in you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for who you are and the fact that you still change our hearts and you still are active and working in your creation today. We love Jacob, but we love you most, Jesus, and we praise you for today. And we pray this in your beautiful, beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.